Uh, Good morning, church family. Today we're going to be reading um, some of 1 Kings chapter 1 and also 1 Kings chapter 2. Um, One detail worth knowing before we read um, that is not immediately clear is that we'll hear about a man named Adonijah and he is one of David's sons. So we're going to start at 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 1. It's on the screen behind me um, and also in the Bibles on your seats. When King David was very old... He could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his attendant said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shumanite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him. But the king had no sexual relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Jeriah, and with Abathar the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok the priest, Benaniah son of Jehodiah, Nathan the prophet, Shemai and Ray, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoliath, near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, or Benaniah, or the special guard, or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in to King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me, your servant, surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. So we'll now skip over to verse 28. In the verses we're skipping over, Nathan and Bathsheba go and see David as they planned, and we have David's response and conclusion from verse 28. Then King David said, Call him Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. In the rest of chapter 1, David keeps that oath, and Solomon is put on the throne. And so now we're going to skip to the start of chapter 2, starting at verse 1. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. Be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him 
and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now you yourself know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood, he stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barazili of Gilead and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shemai, son of Jerah, and the Benjamite from Barim, who called you de- who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahamim, when he came down to meet me at Jordan. I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do with him. Bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, seven in Hebron and 30 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his rule was firmly established. Oh, thanks so much, Jayeshan. Um I don't think too many of us envious, envy you reading that passage with so many names and places. Very well done. Um, a few months before uh, we got going at Tonsley, uh, I was at a conference with uh, pastors like myself who were about to start a new church, uh, and the topic of the preaching program came up. Uh, what parts of the Bible should you look at uh, in you know, the first few months as a new church? It's a good question. Um, I was listening along to all these great ideas people were sharing, the things they were doing, and then they asked me what I was planning at Tonsley. I said, well, we're going to start with the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to keep going with Luke up until Easter, and got lots of nods and you know, proving grins. Sounds good. Um, after that, I said, we're going to go and spend eight weeks in the book of 1 Kings. Uh, the nods kind of just stopped, and people looked a bit puzzled for a bit there. It's uh, not, not an obvious choice. Uh, around the same time, I was chatting to someone, and the topic of devotional life came up. And he said to me, well, I was really getting into my Bible reading. I was loving it. It was all going really well. Until I got to 1 Kings, uh, it was like hitting a wall and it was just fallen off, uh, fallen off the, the wagon. Um, two things happened at that point. I sort of I laughed. I thought, well, that's, I could really identify with that person. 1 Kings is not a straightforward part of the Bible to come to and to read and to, uh, to see how it really uh, fits in uh, with my life. Um, then I started, the second thing was I started wondering, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe I shouldn't take Tonsley uh, through eight weeks in 1 Kings. Uh, There's going to be lots of new people around, hopefully lots of visitors, and it's quite a complex part of the Old Testament. Uh, Even in our reading this morning just now, you've had a good taste of the flavour of the book. Uh, There's a lot of detail, isn't there? Uh, There's a lot to take in. There's people we've never heard of doing things we don't understand, and we just think, what does this have to do with my life? Uh, How will this help me grow as a disciple of Jesus? So, here's a question I've been reflecting on. Why did I think One Kings would be a good idea? And why does Jamie and Katie think it would be a good idea for us to do it here at Colonel Light Gardens for the next eight weeks? 
Um, for me, it was a relatively straightforward decision. Um, it was just that I'd previously preached through the book before this uh, to Samuel here at Colonel Light Gardens. I thought, well, what's next? One Kings. I don't have much imagination, so I just keep going through. Uh, more than that, though, I wanted everyone who was joining us at Tonsley to know the kind of church we are. Uh, just like here at Colonel Light Gardens, we are convinced that God speaks to us through all of the Bible. Some parts of the Bible, obviously, are a bit of hard work. Uh, It takes a lot of thinking and praying to understand what God's saying and why it matters. Um, Some parts of the Bible are very easy to understand, uh, very clear. Uh, Some parts are incredibly uplifting and encouraging. Uh, Some parts are really confronting and sometimes conflicting and controversial. But we are a church um, at Tonsley, and uh, I know we are here as well. We are a church that wants to hear all that God has to say to us in his word, not just the easy parts, not just the straightforward parts. And what we find time and time again is that there is always gold uh, in the road less travelled. So that's really why we're doing a series like this in 1 Kings. Uh, but on top of it all, I want to say 1 Kings really does have a lot of gold for us. Uh, this is not just a case of grinding uh, through uh, the hard bit of the Old Testament uh, to get back to the bits we understand and like, taking our medicine, eating our vegetables. That's not it at all. Uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings with it is it's an amazing book. It's full of drama, there's plots and conspiracies, there's very interesting politics happening. The characters are incredibly complex. Solomon, you'll see over the next few weeks, he's a complicated guy. We see the rise and fall of an amazing empire. And for the architects in the room, we get incredible details about how to build a temple. There's something for everyone in One Kings. Of course, uh, above it all, it is part of the best story ever told. Uh, 1 Kings is part of the story about God establishing his kingdom here on earth. This book is about God's kingdom. Now, when Jesus first burst into the scene, uh, his teaching, uh, even his miracles, they're all about one thing. What was that? Jesus always taught about the kingdom of God. I think on the screen behind me, you'll see from Luke 4, Jesus saying, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. Because that is why I was sent. He had a singular mission to teach about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus' ministry was all centered on that. His parables often were all about the kingdom of God. You pick your favorite parable, you know, the mustard seed or the lost sheep. Jesus is often teaching about the kingdom. Even the title Christ is a reminder that he is all about the kingdom. Christ means appointed king. So that's such a central thing to our Christian faith, the kingdom of God. Here's a challenge for all of us. It's not an easy one. Uh, Over morning tea later, as you're having coffee, uh, could you explain to the person you're chatting to, what is the kingdom of God? Could you do that? Could you articulate what the kingdom of God is? It's so central to everything we believe if we're followers of Jesus. Uh, It's not easy to do, though, is it? To articulate what that is, what it isn't. So 1 Kings is all about the kingdom of God. I think it's kind of assumed reading, actually, as you get to Jesus' teaching often. And part of what we see in this series will help us as we get back to the Gospels to see what Jesus is saying as he preaches about the kingdom. We'll get to see more and more about why Jesus matters, uh, what he's doing as a king, and how we can live in God's kingdom as his people. So before we really launch into the book, let me encourage uh, you all to really read uh, 1 Kings in the weeks ahead. Uh, for instance, you might like to take some notes this morning in your leaflets uh, and see if they'd be helpful in the weeks ahead as you just read uh, chapters 1 and 2 uh, this week, perhaps. Uh, see, I think my job as a preacher is not to do all the thinking and reflection for us. It's actually to try and help us all read the Bible better for ourselves. 
And this is, I think, uh, one of the hard parts of the Bible to kind of to navigate through. Um, but one of the problems with any part of the Bible that makes it difficult to navigate, especially the Old Testament, is getting our head into how it fits into the whole storyline of the Bible. Uh, when you know the whole storyline, when you know uh, what's going and where this part fits in, all the details make much more sense. So imagine uh, you just pick a random episode of a long-running TV, TV show, like 10 seasons, uh, 10 season drama. If you only ever watched... So let's say uh, one episode halfway through season six. Uh, it's very hard to know what really matters, what, what the characters are doing, why they're doing those things. Uh, you don't know the problems they're trying to really deal with in the big picture. And so to find our bearings, uh, let's start with finding our bearings in the first two chapters here of 1 Kings. And starting by where we are in history. Uh, many of you will remember my preaching here at Colonel Light Gardens. Um, I didn't use a lot of visual aids uh, to help me uh, in my preaching, so you'll be comforted. To, I've been working really hard on that the last few weeks. Uh, here's some of my best work uh, to date. Um, took me many minutes pulling this together. Uh, on the right uh, is the Exodus. That's the triangle is clearly the pyramids of Egypt. You got that? Uh, one king starts kind of in the middle, about 450 years after the Exodus. Uh, on the left is exile. I think you can see the blue squiggle. That's clearly the rivers of Babylon, uh, the exile in Babylon. So where we're starting this morning, 1 Kings, is right in the middle, basically, 450 years after the exodus, about another 500 years uh, to the exile. And the sad thing is, actually, that 1 and 2 Kings will basically span from where we are in the middle right up to the exile, uh, which is a bit of a spoiler for you, I, I guess, uh, realising that God's people will end up in exile. It's a sad thing, and... I think as we sort of uh, come to this book, we're realising that the first people people to probably read 1 and 2 Kings were those who were in Babylon. They're thinking, like, what the heck happened? Why are we here? And most importantly, where is God in this? Uh, 1 and 2 Kings helps us answer those very important questions, especially for those exiles in Babylon. Now, the critical thing to remember, though, all through this book, with its focus on kings, hence the title, the thing that hangs over this entire book is God's outrageous promise to King David uh, in a book just before this one. Back in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'll put this on the screen as well, or in your Bibles, you could flick to it, I think on, on the Blue Bibles, page 306. It's such an important passage to have in our minds as we come to 1 Kings. From 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is verse 11. God's making a promise uh, through the prophet Nathan, the same prophet we heard about in 1 Kings. Uh, here's God's promise to David. Uh, halfway through verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house in my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now that is an outrageous promise. The promise of an everlasting kingdom to David's dynasty, David's family, and a kingdom that will be full of blessings to all of God's people. That promise hangs over all of one kings. It's kind of a tantalizing promise at first. It's almost within reach as we see Solomon and what happens in his kingdom. But that kind of promise keeps us in suspense as we keep turning every page, wondering how is God going to keep that promise? And every page we turn, it seems more and more unlikely that God will keep that promise. And so with that promise to David in mind, with an everlasting kingdom that we, uh, we long to see, we come to 1 Kings chapter 1. 
And it starts with this same King David, uh, the, the legendary king, the leader, the soldier, uh, King David, the poet, the worship leader, the giant killer, the man's man and the lady's man. But most of all, he's the man who sought, after, who, um, sought to be God's king. David sought to be God's king. He humbled himself before his king, God. And as we meet King David here, his days are almost over, aren't they? And it's a really sad scene in one, in one sense in chapter 1. Uh, this David who's bigger than life, a giant of history, his body is packing up and he can't even generate enough warmth, uh, to st- uh, enough heat to stay warm. Uh, something we identify readily with at Tonsley. <laughs> the solution his attendants offer, I'm sure we find quite disturbing. Uh, they search the land for the most beautiful girl they can find. This poor, young, beautiful Abishag. Um, for a start, having to have that unfortunate name, Abishag. But unfortunately, she, gets, she goes on to win the, you know, the Miss Israel beauty pageant, and she then has to cuddle up to a dying old man as his hot water bottle. Uh, I take it that's the beauty pageant prize no one really wants to win. Now, the narrator of the story doesn't tell us that this is weird and disturbing, because I think we can kind of work that out for ourselves, but it is. And Abishag, she makes this whole scene even more sad and pathetic. If you remember David's most famous scandal, adultery and murder, it all started because as a younger man, he saw a beautiful woman bathing, Bathsheba. But here, the most beautiful woman in the land is laying next to him in his bed, and the narrator goes to pains to tell us that David had no sexual relationship with her. It's clearly not because he's a gentleman, it's because he's nearly dead. (laughs) The point is, he's a shadow of his former self. It's disturbing, but it's especially tragic. This great man is about to die. And so as an important side note for this morning, um, for everyone here, but I think especially for our youth and our young adults today, um, first thing, an obvious thing to say is stay away from beauty pageants. No good can come from them. (laughs) But we see something else from David here that I think is, uh, is really helpful. Youth and vitality, uh, the life we have now, even as I'm speaking, we're slowly dying. Our vitality leaves us eventually. And so King David, this great king, he knew this. In Psalm 39, uh, David models a great prayer for us all to pray uh, all through life, especially those who are rushing through life. This is David praying, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. David knew this. And I think it's good for us to pray this kind of prayer, perhaps every day for a while, to reflect on these things. Because this psalm, and alongside the scene we've just read about with a dying David, it helps us remember who we are in God's eyes. It helps us remember how short our life is. It helps us grasp what's important. Helps us prioritize the things of the kingdom. Now, I'm just picking this up because I think this is one of the great problems that goes all through one and two kings death. It doesn't matter how good a king is, even King David, it doesn't matter how faithful they are as God's king, they just keep dying. Death catches them all. And one of the great problems with a great king like David dying is well, there are zero guarantees that his successor will be any good at all. And sure enough, in fact, we keep seeing, even when a good king dies, it almost always happens that his successor is nearly always terrible. And we think, how can God keep his outrageous promise? Death keeps getting in the way of the good kings, and the successor is always rubbish. It's an obvious problem if you're trying to have an eternal kingdom. How do you have a king who will last? 
And so even here on page one of 1 Kings, we're pointed already to Jesus to see how God will ultimately keep this promise. This promise to David is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. After Jesus' resurrection, the fact that he has died and risen no longer to die again, that's the thing that's celebrated by his disciples in the early church. Because Jesus now sits on that throne, the throne that was promised David. And Jesus now rules that kingdom, a rule that won't be interrupted by death, like here it is for David. That's a very good thing, isn't it? Because look what happens as David gets near to death. Chaos ensues. Uh, There's a grab for power from verse 5 onwards, and I think this really sets the tone for the whole book. Uh, People who are refusing to humble themselves uh, and instead cling to power is an absolute disaster for the kingdom of God. So Adonijah, uh, Aisha pointed out to us, is one of David's sons. Uh, he's handsome, he's politically savvy, he's very ambitious. Uh, verse, four, he put, uh, verse 5, he puts himself forward and says, I will be king. Now to be fair to him, he's probably David's oldest remaining son at this point, so it, it, probably fair to assume at one level the throne would pass to him. Uh, he seemed to tick all the boxes. But what's the problem? The problem then is that the kingdom of God doesn't run like the kingdom of our world, where the most ambitious, uh, the most politically savvy people always get ahead. The kingdom of God is not like that. The problem with Adonijah is that he doesn't tick the boxes that truly count. To start, uh, you know, King David, who is still alive, hasn't given him his blessing. And worse than that, we find in verse 8 here that Adonijah doesn't have the blessing of Nathan the prophet. It's a small detail, but it's crucial. See, Nathan in these chapters and throughout David's life is kind of God's spokesman. And if you don't have Nathan on your side, you might as well not have God on your side, is, is I think, the image. doesn't seem to bother Adonijah, though. He goes and makes uh, himself king in verses 9 and 10, or tries to. He gathers his supporters together. Uh, never mind, again, the fact that his father is still technically alive. Uh, it's a bit rude, really. Again, isn't this the pattern of our world? Uh, leaders climbing over others to get ahead, putting themselves forward, exalting themselves... Uh, but not so in the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus tells us his, and, uh, to be his disciples uh, to not be like Adonijah, to be like those who are in power in our world. In, it's the opposite. In Mark chapter 10, uh, again, this will be on the screen, uh, Jesus t- instructs us to not be like this. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatness in the kingdom of God isn't about being in charge, it's not about calling the shots, it's about serving. It's about exalting others before exalting ourselves. And I know this church well enough to know that I think we can be really thankful that we have this hallmark in our culture of service. It's a wonderful church where I know so many serve and faithfully help and care for each other with great humility and grace. And I have the pleasure of sharing office with Jamie and Katie through the week and hearing the many ways they're seeking to serve you, to love you, with great humility and putting others first before themselves, time and again. I think it's a great thing to be part of a church like this. Uh, As we're serving and finding increasing joy in serving others, uh, we are experiencing kingdom life and pray that it might always be like this. Now, one of the things I guess I wonder about Adonijah is, like, why was he unclear about this whole uh, thing about him not being the king? And no one ever sat down to him and talked to him about the fact that, you know, you're not going to be the king. That would be a helpful conversation you assume his father would have had with him. Doesn't look like it, though, does it? In fact, in verse 6, all we get insight into is that David never really stepped in to correct his sons at all. 
uh, he's, especially Adonijah, his self-indulgent behaviour, it seems to go unchecked. See, if my sons, I'm speaking as a father, if one of my boys had 50 men running in front of his chariot on the way to the shops, I'd probably want to challenge his character at that point, as, you know, have a, as a dad sit down, have a good heart-to-heart about humility and uh, that sort of thing. But David is missing in action here as a responsible father. Uh, it's actually been a reoccurring theme for him in his life and his family. It's been disastrous time and again. And here it's nearly disastrous. But thankfully, uh, the promise God made to David is a promise that depends on God's grace, not David's brilliant parenting, which I find very relieving as a parent. I think relieving for all of us because it's the same. God's promises to us are always based on his grace, not what we do, not how well we do it. And so God here, even, even through David's failure, God intervenes and he heads off Adonijah's grab for power. So I just want to briefly uh, give us a, uh, an account of what's happening in chapter 1 from verse 11. We're just stepping through some of the, the key details for us uh, without really getting bogged down. Um, Nathan the prophet, the key sort of player here, he takes action. And I think that's, that's really important. That's, uh, I think, the key to understanding what's going on in the rest of this chapter. See, in a messy and complicated family situation, uh, what do they need? Uh, what, what does David's family need at this point? They need the word of God to intervene. And Nathan, I think, represents God's word here. And after all, that's how God always intervenes in our world. He speaks. He speaks into chaos and he he gives words of instruction. And here he's doing it through Nathan. Uh, Verse 13, we find out that God's choice all along uh, and David's choice is Solomon to be the king. And so Nathan gets to work. He he teams up with the other hero of this chapter, uh, Bathsheba, uh, Solomon's mum. Got on your mum going into bat for a baby boy. Uh, and from verse 15 to 27, Nathan and Bathsheba, they go and see David, and they basically say, look, Adonijah's making himself the king. You said it would be Solomon. What's going on? Uh, have you changed your minds? And it seems to me that it's at this point that God's word through Nathan sort of snaps David out of his, of his stupor, his near-death kind of experience. That's true for us too, isn't it? Uh, we need God to step into our world, into our lives, and to speak. It's it's God's word that snaps us out of our spiritual stupors and to remind us of his great promises. Which, by the way, is why our growth groups are such an important part of church life. It's because we need people like Nathan in our lives. We can share our life with them and uh, talk with others about our lives uh, and then hear them speak God's words, uh, declaring the promises of the gospel to us, the reassurance of God's grace. Encourage them to persevere and to keep the kingdom, uh, the kingdom priorities as number one. We can be very thankful for the growth groups, the way they play that role, helping us grow as a church. And sure enough, just like we see time to time in our own lives, God's word moves David here. Verse 29, David says, right, let's do this. Let's just move it along and put uh, Solomon on the throne right away. No more delay. And from verse 32 onwards, there's a wonderful account of that happening. Uh, it's well worth reading. It's a glorious moment in the kingdom of Israel. And there's great drama and ceremony. I do encourage you to go, go and read this chapter carefully later. And of course, in the middle of the drama is Adonijah, just down the road. He hears, while he's having his own coronation service, he hears the real coronation taking place back in the city. Just put yourself in Adonijah's shoes for a moment. He thinks he's about to be the king. Suddenly, his world just comes crashing down. He realizes he's not the king. Uh, for every one of us, I think uh, we can actually come to terms with that reality uh, in the same kind of way as Adonijah does. Because God has put Jesus on the throne, not me. 
Jesus is the exalted king who calls the shots in my life, not me. It's quite a, it can be quite an uh, uncomfortable moment realising that. And at the end of chapter 1, Adonijah is actually terrified for his life. He realises who the true king is, but rather than def- defy him or fight a losing battle that he knows he's going to lose, Adonijah throws himself at the king's mercy. I think this is a picture for us of the moment we're confronted with the reality that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus reigns as king. We can't fight him. We can't defy him. All we can do is throw ourselves at his mercy. And we can be sure that even more than Solomon here, Jesus does offer us mercy, us, even us sinners. He offers us mercy in abundance. Now, as we get to uh, the start of chapter 2, I'm only going to touch on it briefly here this week, but again, it'd be well worth reading in full. In the start of chapter 2, we have David's last words to his son Solomon. It's basically commissioning Solomon to his new job as king. Um, it's not just any job, is it? Being God's king is quite a particular role to have, and what must he do? What kind of king does he need to be? Have a look here at verses 2 to 4, and these words, I think, really haunt us as we read the rest of 1 Kings. This is the king, uh, God's king should do. Sorry. Uh, from verse 3, I'll read. He needs to be strong enough and courageous enough, verse 3, to observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees, commands, his laws and regulations. He needs to be strong enough courageous enough to do those things. Again, a bit of a spoiler alert for you, but uh, some kings do okay on this. Solomon does so at first. Most of the kings we'll read about don't even come close to fulfilling this job description. Uh, Even the ones that do, like I said, they keep dying eventually. How can God's kingdom be ruled like it should be unless the king is obedient and humble? How can God's kingdom come to earth if each and every human is warped by sin and ultimately face death? Again, this book points us straight away to the perfect king, the one that's humble and meek and gentle, the faithful king who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. So as we read about Jesus' life in the New Testament, we realise that everyone around him is just trying to work out, is this really the Messiah? Is this the long-awaited one that, that that God promised to David? Does Jesus fit the bill? And sure enough, we find time and again, he is the only person who lives up to this charge David gives Solomon to be righteous, to be obedient. This is very good news for us. Uh, As we enter the kingdom of God, when we put our faith in Jesus as our saviour and as our king, a king as good as Jesus means his kingdom is very good to belong to. It's a kingdom that's about humility and service that raises up and blesses others. It's a kingdom about love and care that, that seeks the welfare of those on the margins, those who are oppressed. It's a kingdom about righteousness, where darkness and evil and sin have no stranglehold on us anymore. It's a kingdom of grace, not of works, so we don't compete with each other or jostle or be envious of others. It's a kingdom of life and joy and vitality. We get to enjoy real life in the presence and relationship with our loving Heavenly Father now and into eternity. And it's a kingdom all about the praise and honour and glory of the Lord God Almighty. It's a great kingdom to be part of. Praise Jesus that he would step in where no one else could to bring us into that kingdom. That's the good news. Chapter 2, though, I think finishes with a bit of sour taste. Um, From verses 1 to 4, there's that great instruction to be God's righteous king, to do the right thing. 
And then straight after that, David tells Solomon, oh, and go kill some people. It's a bit of a gear change, isn't it, uh, from verse 4 to verse 5, after he instructs uh, him to be righteous, to go and uh, basically take care of some business that's been undone. Um, as you're reading this chapter during the week, I'm sure, uh, like it was for me, it won't sit that comfortably as Solomon goes and does that. Uh, he does actually end up showing mercy where he can, uh, but for others who cross the line, and in the end, including Adonijah, who doesn't submit to, David, uh, to Solomon, in the end, under Solomon, they die. Now, I think this is hard reading for us. Um, the narrator actually doesn't give us words of approval or disapproval here. And each death comes actually because uh, Solomon's authority as king is challenged. And I think that's jarring for us partly because in Australia, you know, if you lose an election, you're not beheaded the next day. Um, but it's slightly different for Solomon. The threats to his throne are actually threats to his life. And so we want to be careful about passing judgment too carefully on Solomon for uh, quite brutal uh, tactics, given it's quite a brutal uh, environment to be in. Nevertheless, perhaps the takeaway for us is that God's King Jesus, uh, yes, he's meek, yes, he's mild, but he's not to be trifled with. We will be very cautious before we even think about um, laying a threat to his throne, to his rule, because he's the king. Uh, he is also the judge. And as we know all through history, treason has never sat well with a king. I think more than that, though, the end of chapter 2 tells us uh, what we know too well. The problem with securing any throne is that it's usually secured with blood, the blood of those trying to grab it for themselves. Just like with Solomon here, his throne is secured with blood of his, of his enemies, those who oppose him, um, usurpers. The blood of people just like us, actually, when we think about our relationship to God. I think that's what makes this chapter so uncomfortable. Who among us has never opposed Jesus' right to rule over our lives? I think the very, very good news in this chapter uh, that we're pointed to is that Jesus secures his throne, yes, by blood, but not by the blood of his enemies. It's by his own blood that Jesus secures his throne, like no other king before him. He died for the usurper, for the traitor. He died for his enemy. He died for me. Jesus gives us peace, peace with him as king, and he gives us ent entrance into the kingdom of God. Uh, that's very good news, isn't it? I think in all the highs and lows of this chapter, all that we've covered this morning, and plenty more besides, I think as we read 1 and 2 Kings... Our hearts ought to be moved by the grace and mercy of our eternal King Jesus and keep cherishing the place he's brought for us in his kingdom. So would you join me as I pray? Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the kind of king that you are and the kind of magnificent kingdom you have drawn us into. Please help each one of us love and serve you faithfully as our king. And so help us to rejoice Give our hearts great gladness knowing you and growing in our knowledge of the many blessings and privileges of belonging to your eternal kingdom. And so please help us live as your faithful servants. Amen.